0: Leah asks if that's a true story, meaning how much of it is a true story, which makes me think of the Evangelist, and that, in turn, reminds me that Corvid's field is the UN airfield Elizabeth was writing about for her newspaper. And is she still there? Did she go home? Is she alive? And I realize that Elizabeth does not know about Leah, and that Leah does not know about Elizabeth and then that there is no reason why they should, because Elizabeth and I have never been other than friends and training partners. Jim Hepzibah is about to answer Leah's question when the road in front of us explodes and the windscreen stars and shatters, and we are hurled not forward but back as Gonzo stamps on the accelerator and takes us around and alongside the crater gunning the engine to make it over the rubble by the side of the road and controlling the slewing and skidding as we leave the asphalt or tarmac or clay or whatever it is they use here. Ronnie Chung's tactical driving course takes over, and everyone tries to throw the enemy, weaving in and out like a school of fish, confusing a tuna. It's hard to think of tuna as predators because we eat them as sushi, but if you're on Mr. Bluefin's dinner list... He's as mean a sucker as you could ever know, and he is fast and damn hungry. There are only four vehicles, and one of them's a tank, so the effect is muted. But Mr. Bluefin, in this case, is a lousy shot. Or more likely, he's never seen coordinated tactical driving before. He shoots at where we are, and he needs to be shooting at where we're going to be. He misses. We leave him behind." Twenty minutes later, three figures beside a barricade of wood and rubble. Gonzo barely slows. He flicks his headlights to full, and I catch a glimpse of a couple of guys with an RPG. They are not aiming it at us. They just have one, like they're having tea and grenades. And a third figure in shredded coveralls. This third person, apart from the others, is tall and too thin, and wears an orange prisoner suit and a gas mask. The gas mask is very strange because it makes the person in it look as if they have no head. The person waves, arms crossing and uncrossing. Stop, the orange person is saying, or help, or possibly slow down so we can kill you and steal your car. And then they're gone. Gonzo has taken us over the middle of the barricade, and they haven't shot at us. "'Does that mean they weren't part of the outfit who blew up the road? "'Or does it mean that they were, but they don't fancy a real fight? "'I have no idea. "'I ask Gonzo, but he's fighting to control the car. "'He's had enough of this crap, and he's got the thing up to about sixty, "'which isn't bad on a road made of clay and asphalt patched with sheep shit. "'We leave the waving, creepy person behind, and Gonzo keeps that speed up.' until we arrive at Corvid's field. The UN flag is still flying over the control tower, sad and bleached. A couple of guys in blue helmets stand at the gates, covering us with their sidearms. The walls have been shot up some, and there's a dirty smear along one side of the tower where some kind of explosive has gone off, and the tower has been patched but not repainted. Otherwise, they seem to have got lucky, although from this angle it's not possible to see the whole field. And on the runway, sing Hosanna, there is a pair of elderly but serviceable cargo planes. They have no windows, and the seating will not be comfortable, but between them, if we are permitted to use them, we can evacuate everyone. One of the blue helmets walks out towards us, cautious. He's a brave little guy, probably Puerto Rican on secondment. It takes some chutzpah to leave your own gate and walk up to an armoured column, even one as ragtag as ours, and tell them to behave or face the consequences of your displeasure. That is what he is coming to do, and he knows, and he knows that we know, that those consequences are basically him being extremely stern and maybe his commander giving us a sound talking to. Or, I realise, a blonde civilian with a too-long face coming out and stamping her foot. But Elizabeth is nowhere to be seen. I hope she has already gone home. Who the hell are you? the UN guy wants to know. We're a travelling circus, Gonzo says acidly. I'm the bearded lady, and these here, he points to Jim Hepzibah and Sally and me, are my clowns. The UN guy doesn't think much of that. ''Fine,'' he says. ''Take me to the ringmaster.'' And Gonzo says, ''That's him, too.'' ''Turn around,'' the UN guy says. ''There's an armed camp maybe six or seven hours that way. They can help you better than we can.'' ''We need evac,'' Gonzo replies. ''And so do you.'' ''Turn around.'' the UN guy says again. Gonzo looks thunderous and pissed off, and he's about to share his feelings when the gate opens, and the other UN guy waves us in. Our guy looks pretty disgusted and steps out of the way. Gonzo throws him a little grin, and we all cruise merrily past him, through the gates, and the last we see of him is a single figure trudging slowly back to his position. We don't pay him much attention, though, because by this time we realise how badly we have been fucked. We realise this because once everyone is inside the compound and outside their vehicles, soldiers who are emphatically not with the UN step out from the low buildings of Corvid's field and point their guns at us. And unlike George Copson's bastard squad at John Dice, they don't bother to tell us we are prisoners, because that sort of speaks for itself. And after patting us down and disarming us quite thoroughly, they take us to their leader. Vasil makes a face. Merde! Ruth Kemner. She has taken the small departures hall for her own. It is a high room with narrow vertical windows in frosted glass, intended to let the light through but not the glare. There's a beaten-up luggage carousel by the door and a bar on one side, but the main event is at the far end under the sign saying, Embarkment, and the same in a variety of languages. Men stand in precise parade-ground formation, port arms. A moth-eaten red carpet has been laid out in strips across the floor, and a few rostra have been shoved together to make a dais, as in a place where a monarch sits. Which is where the whole thing goes absolutely to the bad. Ruth Kemner is sitting on a throne. It is not a very special throne, as these things go. It is the control chair of an assault helicopter, welded to a metal frame, the whole thing draped over with a leopard's skin, which might have come from an actual leopard, but probably didn't. The setup looks like some 70s movie in which warrior women, played by bathing beauties, "'capture and threaten to execute a group of male castaways "'before melting blissfully into the arms of the square-jawed and plucky chaps "'who stand for no sapphic nonsense "'and know that every good girl wants a firm hand. "'It's ludicrous. "'That's probably why she has added the two severed heads to the uprights of the throne. "'They lend her an undeniable air of not screwing around. "'Her eyes look completely ordinary,' which is what eyes do, but the face in which they rest, the network of small muscles which are used, voluntarily and otherwise, to produce expressions and communicate mood, is broadcasting that she's dangerously psychotic. She sits forward, and she turns her head slowly so we can see that someone has taken a knife to her. They have attempted to open her throat, but they have failed, and there is a cut along her jaw which must have been painful and bloody, but which is now nicely stitched up. The surgeon has also put the lower half of her ear back, but it's not looking too hopeful. As she looks at us, her face is in precisely the same position as head number two, and the resemblance is uncanny. Unless Ruth Kemner has a sister, she's gone and murdered someone who looks very like her, and use that person as part of the furnishings. It hardly matters which. Kemner has, as advertised, gone batshit. And from the old newspaper stand at the far end of the room, her flunky brings out a muffled, furious figure, thrashing and bucking and roaring for a fair shot, or possibly for justice and freedom. And when they whip off his hood, we are all able to recognise Ben Carsville." If that scar is his work, it says a great deal for the unvarnished power of idiocy. It also explains why Kemner isn't dead, and foreshadows a very bad ending to the story of the most handsome soldier in the elective theatre. Carsville sets his jaw and glances at the throne situation and the heads, and he obviously takes in the movie thing too because... He makes some off-colour joke. Ben Carsville, of course, is exactly the kind of man who would be able to win the heart of a libidinously frustrated Amazon queen. Unfortunately, Kemner isn't some busty trollop with a power complex. She was a respectable kind of mercenary soldier, non-governmental military consultant, at the bloodier end of the spectrum, What she is now, after the things which have happened since George Copson's red telephone rang and signalled the commencement of non-conventional hostilities in the new era, is less certain. She looks at Ben Carsville with a chilly curiosity. Whatever sassy opening he used hasn't immediately had its effect. She doesn't slap him in an affronted, yet alluring way. She doesn't stare moodily into his eyes.' She regards him with a kind of scientific interest, as if he were a new species ready for vivisection. She nods at her thugs. They pick Carsville up with a lot of hur, hur, "hur and Kemner leads us all out around the back of the departures hall. When you walk a prisoner at gunpoint, there is one thing you do not do. You do not poke him with your gun barrel. Every second you spend in physical contact with your prisoner is a second he is aware of the disposition of your body and is close enough to attack you, assuming he knows where the gun is, before you can pull the trigger. Olympic athletes leaving the starting blocks are too slow to fire a gun in the time it takes a trained soldier to push the barrel to one side once he knows where it is. A gun is a weapon of medium distance, not close combat. So you don't give him the chance to map out the situation. You don't let him feel how relaxed or how tense you are, and you never, ever shove him with your weapon, because if you are fraction off centre and he allows the barrel to pivot him, You have just put the business end of your gun right past him, and he can bite your nose off or use your gun to shoot the man in front or any number of other things which are not conducive to good penal discipline. Kemner's men are good. They keep a fluid yet constant distance between us. They do not allow us to communicate, and they do not rise to baits like stumbling, slight increases or decreases in speed— or comments about their hair. They imagine, therefore, that they have communicated nothing to us about themselves beyond that they are in the position to kill us all and have no intention of reversing roles. They are mistaken. The way they have deployed is extremely revealing. Our guards are moving in a mild curve behind us so that we are caught in the focus of their field of fire if they should choose to gun us down, so much as to be expected. Around them, however, are other men whose eyes are turned outward. They watch the hills and the trees round, and they carry long guns. They are looking out, but also at everything which is not immediately within their sphere of control. In the control tower... There is a sniper. These men are not pro forma. They are paying attention in a way which is unique to people who have recently been attacked and expect to be attacked again. And they are expecting attack not just from outside, but from within the bounds of Corvid's field, which by rights should be their safe zone. Their fingers rest close to their triggers, and they are intense and even a bit twitchy. In other words, someone has given them a serious case of the willies. That information is worth something. But it slips away as we come in view of our destination, and my stomach lurches, and all the hairs on my neck tingle as if there were a spider walking over my lips. Corvid's field has been hit by a go-away bomb. This place was not supposed to be a target, at least It wasn't one of our targets, but on the other hand, what is supposed to be a target and what actually gets blown up, or gone away, are movable feasts in war. Beside the runway, concealed from the approach road by the bulk of the tower building, the ground slopes away in a smooth line, as if excavated in a single go by a very big curved shovel." A large section of forest and a fragment of a wooden outhouse have disappeared, along with the latter half of a cargo plane. The plane has rolled back a bit, or been pushed, so that it's now a sort of open corridor out over the excision, which, unlike all the ones I have seen in testing, is not empty. Bubbling up from the centre, there is water, or something looking very much like it,